stories from your community. This is the 519 Podcast, part of the Blackburn Media Podcast Network. Last week on the 519 Podcast, we examined the case of Elizabeth Wetlawfer, a nurse that killed eight of her patients in southwestern Ontario, and, so it turns out, doctors can kill as well. A whole century before Wetlawfer committed her first crime, a murderous doctor prowled the streets of London, Ontario. On this episode of the 519 Podcast, we follow the trail of a Scottish-Canadian doctor turned serial killer, Dr. Thomas Neil Cream, otherwise known as the Lambeth Poisoner. You may have heard about the infamous Dr. Thomas Neil Cream, as he's often mentioned in a long list of men suspected of being Jack the Ripper. However, unrelated to the Whitechapel murders, Dr. Cream was a serial killer in his own right, moving from Quebec to London, Ontario, then to the States and to London, England. Death followed this doctor like the plague. Here's your host, Haley Chang. Dr. Thomas Neil Cream was born in Glasgow, Scotland in the early summer of 1850. In 1854, the Cream family immigrated to Quebec City where they thrived in Quebec's booming lumber industry. But on January 17, 1870, tragedy hit the Cream family. Thomas's mother passed away after years of being severely ill. It may have been his helplessness during his mother's sickness that encouraged Thomas to pursue a career in medicine. However, unlike most doctors, Thomas used what he learned to hurt others rather than save them. This is Dean Job, author of The Case of the Murderous Dr. Cream, The Hunt for a Victorian-Era Serial Killer. He's one of these uh, shadowy, gothic type uh, villains that uh, pervades uh, Victorian era. And he was a Canadian doctor, uh, grew up in Quebec City in a wealthy family that was involved in the timber trade was trained at uh, McGill uh, Medical School uh, to become a doctor. And somewhere in his privileged background, somewhere in his twisted psyche, he started using his medical knowledge to kill. And poison was his weapon of choice. I was fascinated with Victorian medicine, and it's a very ghoulish business. Surgery without anesthetic, without any kind of sterilization. Undergoing an operation in Cream's time, 1870s, 1880s, was uh, uh, probably a 5 to 10% chance of surviving the surgery and infection. None of the standards, none of the understanding. I mean, even germs weren't understood. So uh, it was a really bloody business. And uh, he trained, he was fully trained as a, as a general practitioner. He'd had some surgery training. And interestingly, uh, while there were uh, druggists, it was very common for physicians to formulate their own medicines. And uh, this was part of his training. So he knew the properties of a poison like strychnine. In 1876, Thomas graduated from McGill University in Montreal, officially becoming a doctor. Later that summer, he began courting a young woman named Flora Eliza Brooks in his hometown of Waterloo, Quebec. She became pregnant. He performed an abortion. She almost died. It was successful, but he was forced to marry her, which again talks about the times. He should have been put in jail. But the family solution was to have them married to overcome the stigma and to suppress the scandal. Cream then went to England for further training to get a license in uh, the UK and sent back medicine that ultimately was seen later to have caused her death. So he had already murdered his young wife 
And then when he came back to North America from England in 1879, he settled in London, Ontario, uh, set up a practice very much uh, playing on his uh, sterling, these seemingly sterling credentials he had. He was accredited by the uh, surgeons and uh, physicians and surgeons of Edinburgh, which was the top certification for a medical man at the time. Dr. Cream set up his practice at 206 Dundas Street, which is now a government office, and began performing abortions on the side. He spared no expense advertising his business. There were established doctors in London, Ontario, but in the London Free Press and the London Advertiser newspapers, Cream would have a larger ad in the classifieds at the top of the physician's uh, columns. So he was really touting himself as this expert. He presented himself well, both in business and in his personal life. He was a doctor. He dressed the part, acted the part, and had the certifications to prove it. But as some people came to realize, there was a lot more to Dr. Cream than the sterling image he presented. I found an account by someone who knew him well, and he really was an almost Jekyll and Hyde character. Through the day, he seemed to be this upstanding doctor, and at night he was hanging out at this, with this group of bachelors that had their own named club, and basically they just got loaded and chased women. So very much this Victorian dichotomy between the respectable male and the the, the uh, marauder at night that of course Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde by the chemical that that uh, Dr. Jekyll takes does that transformation but it really cream really plugs into this whole idea of uh, the uh, hypocrisy and the the dual life that uh, was led in what seemed to be res- respectable in Victorian times but When you rip the lid off in a case like this, you see what's really going on. His nights were very different from one of an upstanding citizen. He spent his evenings drinking, doing drugs, and consorted with prostitutes, eventually developing an addiction to all of these activities. These pastimes were alarming and shocking to the public, but it didn't foreshadow what he was really capable of. In May of 1879, the body of Catherine Gardiner was found behind Dr. Cream's office. She's found in a, an outhouse in the back. The body is clearly staged to look like she had killed herself with chloroform, which is virtually impossible. And the doctors and the coroner and even the police realized, no, this is murder. And the last person who had seen her was Dr. Cream. She was going to his office. So the circumstantial evidence was overwhelming. But whether or not this case could be made to stick was going to be the problem. So there was lots of coverage of the death, the suspicion. There was a coroner's inquest. So I went to the Archives of Ontario and I found the inquest for uh, Kate Gardner, who was the uh, the young woman. She was a maid in uh, the Tecumseh Hotel, which was the famous hotel uh, uh, right by the railway station in London uh, at the time. Gardner was unmarried and pregnant which was extremely stigmatized at the time and had gone to Cream for an abortion. In the inquest, Cream admitted to having consulted Gardner, but he said he had refused to help perform the abortion. He insisted that Gardner must have taken her own life. The coroner's jury disagreed, ruling that Gardner had died from chloroform, administered by an unknown person. Although an arrest and conviction was never made, the rumors and suspicions were enough to ruin Dr. Cream's reputation and drive his practice out of town. Cream left Canada and traveled across the world, leaving bodies in his trail. 
He was eventually caught in London, England, where the detectives investigating his case slowly began to piece together his life and all the women who met their unfortunate end after encounters with cream. A Scotland Yard inspector, Frederick Gervais, eventually came to London, Ontario, looking into Dr. Cream's past. What did he do in London? What was he like? And what sort of suspicious activities took place while he lived here? It became clear that the murder in London, England, was not his first. Given how prolific Cream was, I had to wonder at every stop, are there others? So I, I did my best to try to narrow that down, and I was really helped by having this, uh, this Inspector Jarvis was a crack investigator for Scotland Yard, and that gave me some comfort level because he was sending back 15, 20-page, almost daily written reports of everything oh, wow. he was finding. And he went, he went to Quebec City, he went to Montreal, he went to the townships, he went to Chicago, he went to London, Ontario. He even went to Kingston and Hamilton because he'd heard rumors there and there he'd seen things in the press. I chased uh, suggestions he'd killed in Hamilton, Ontario, Kingston, Ontario. Couldn't find any evidence he'd even been there. So um, um, whether he did kill at every stop, he certainly killed at every major stop he was at. And uh, that was the two places in Canada, uh, in Chicago and Illinois, and then ultimately in London, England. As I said, uh, it's hard to believe he had a medical practice. He was pretty busy as a murderer. He claimed four victims in uh, Chicago, one of them one of them uh, outside of Chicago, so four all told in Illinois. That was in the space of less than a year. So he was uh, he was very much a, a killing machine. After killing his wife in Quebec and Kate Gardner in London, Ontario, Dr. Cream moved on to Chicago where he found his next victims. The way he committed his murders allowed him to go largely undetected, given the lack of forensic analysis available at the time. To give an example of how poisons were detected in that era, toxicologists would actually taste a little amount of the poisons to decipher between the different ones. Dangerous? Yes. But reliable? Not definitively. As a medical man, it wasn't hard for Dr. Cream to obtain various types of drugs, and strychnine was his weapon of choice. During his time at McGill, Cream wrote his thesis on the properties of strychnine, how it was used, and how it can easily kill when used incorrectly. While it is no longer used by doctors today, historically strychnine was used in small amounts to strengthen muscle contractions, such as a heart and bowel stimulant. Most of his victims were poisoned with it. A horrible death, it causes a horrible death, and it's a very potent poison. It basically uh, throws a victim into spasms that can can come and go over the course of hours, leading ultimately to heart failure and death. But oddly enough, strychnine in minute, non-lethal quantities was a common additive of drugs. So as a doctor, he had ready access to it. He knew how to hide it in other medicine, which he did. And ultimately, he knew exactly how much to use to cause death. It was particularly evil because he abused the trust and privilege that came with being a doctor and used it to kill. A large portion of his victims were patients, coming to him in a time of need. Nine out of ten were women, and many of them came to him because they were pregnant and non-married. And one of the sources I quote in the book uh, says that's a living death. The uh, stigma of being an unwed mother in the Victorian era drove these women to desperate measures, whether seeking drugs 
that would cause a miscarriage or an abortion or to actually have the procedure. And this became one of, 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 of uh, Cream's specialties. It's pretty clear he did have a bit of a medical practice in some of the cities he bounced around. But, you know, there are comparisons to Jack the Ripper. Jack the Ripper stalked his victims in the streets of London. Uh, and it's just chilling to, to realize that Cream's victims came to him at their most desperate seeking help and he so cruelly abused that trust and there's a random to this randomness to this that's even another layer of uh, tragedy and uh, chilling uh, is that he didn't kill every patient every young woman as far as we can tell so he would pick and choose his victims uh, play god if you will while in Illinois from 1880 to 1881, Dr. Cream was accused of killing Marianne Faulkner during a botched abortion. He also poisoned Ellen Stack and Alice Montgomery with strychnine. He was never caught, allowing him to walk freely until the death of Daniel Stott. Stott was poisoned with strychnine after taking his wife's medication provided by Dr. Cream. He received a life sentence, but as a result of bribery, he ended up serving only 10 years in the Illinois Joliet State Penitentiary. After his release in 1891, Dr. Cream moved to London, England, where he found lodging at 103 Lambeth Palace Road. It was in the Lambeth area where Cream succumbed to his greatest vices, drugs, alcohol, and soliciting prostitutes. And under the name of Dr. Neal of the St. Thomas Hospital, he resumed his killings. Because he was preying on sex workers, uh, women who were living in poverty, women who wouldn't necessarily be missed. Well, and luck was on his side. His, uh, his first victim was judged to be a suicide. He had given her uh, a bottle of something spiked with strychnine. And Scotland Yard wrote it off as a suicide, even though one of the higher ups on a report said, well, how would she get this poison? It only goes to doctors. But nobody was wiser. His next victim died and was misdiagnosed, or the cause of death was natural causes, heart failure. Despite the seizures, it was turned out, it was, it was attributed to severe alcoholism. So he caught a break. These women weren't necessarily ill with anything, but when he told them this medicine could help with some minor thing. One woman had a rash, I think, and he said, oh, well, take this before bedtime. They trusted him implicitly. At every, every stage of his murderous career, he really abused that trust that was built up, that uh, his position as, as a medical man who would help, not hurt. In just six months of living in Lambeth, Dr. Cream killed four women. Ellen Dosworth, Matilda Clover, Emma Shrivel, and Alice Marsh. On one night, he left uh, poisoned pills for two women, two uh, sex workers he'd befriended, and they both died. And this is when Scotland Yard really had to take a look. Only then did the pattern emerge. Was it discovered that there'd been another strychnine poisoning? that this earlier poisoning a week before wasn't suicide, and that's when things got into high gear. Like many serial killers, Dr. Cream felt the need to show investigators just how clever he thought he was. Eventually, this left a trail of clues leading straight to himself. I mean, he'd, he had refined the way he put strychnine in pills. He had, uh, 
He had ordered special uh, gelatin capsules, which are very common to us now, the kind of time-release capsule we see today was a new thing in the 1890s, and he sourced those, took uh, and stuffed them with strychnine, so he became a better poisoner. He also, through this paper trail, was, was sowing confusion, but also um, bragging, if you will, about these crimes while not identifying himself. And then he befriended some detectives, including a Scotland Yard detective. It's like he couldn't help himself. He was taking people around saying that, making it like he was just well plugged into the gossip and the grapevine in Lambeth. And he was showing a friends and even one detective where one of the victims had lived, almost like he was doing a tour guide. So he was sailing very, very close to the wind. And whether that, whether he enjoyed that, whether he enjoyed bamboozling or having it over the detectives, but ultimately this started, this is where it started to unravel. What finally led to Cream's downfall was his attempt at blackmailing wealthy and prominent men in Lambeth society. He sent them letters under a pseudonym claiming that he had proof that they had killed the victims. And unless they paid him a high fee, he would give that information to the police. Cream thought that the men would instantly pay up, fearing of being the center of gossip and ruining the reputation. However, that was not the case, and what Cream didn't count on was that they would give the letters to the police. Since the police were already mildly suspicious of Cream, they were able to connect Cream to the letters, implicating him in his detailed knowledge of the murders. There was a, a lot of criticism of Scotland Yard, even from the judge hearing Cream's case, of the failure of Scotland Yard to, to really uh, dig into the case. Because one of the ways they traced Cream was, I'd mentioned how he would send forged letters. He was actually blackmailing prominent people in London accusing them of his crimes. And that was how they started to figure out, well, wait a minute, you're accusing this person of this murder. We don't have this as a murder. Then they started to see a pattern. Then they had to find out who's behind the letters. But there was around a, a lot of criticism of Scotland Yard for uh, investigating the blackmail, not realizing it was linked to real murders and being slow to, in other words, they're quick to investigate blackmail against prominent people, seem to be less energized when it came to uh, investigating the deaths of these poor women. That was a real, uh, um, it was a boon to Cream because it gave him space to continue to kill. Whereas it's possible if his first victim in London had been uh, properly identified as a murder, uh, it might have stopped him in his tracks or perhaps deterred him. A new detective was brought in to head it once it well, head the investigation, once they realized it was another serial killer, once they realized, you know, three years after Jack the Ripper, we've got someone else doing similar, uh, a similar pattern of murders that really said, wait a minute now, did a long report, looked at all the evidence, looked at descriptions, the, the partial descriptions of people that were thought to be suspects, and it all came back to cream. So that's when they started to focus on him. And uh, that's when they finally identified him. And ultimately, it was through his handwriting. He had gotten someone to write some of his letters, but a few of them he'd written in his own distinctive handwriting. And again, as I said, he just, uh, I don't think he wanted to be caught. But I think he thought he was too clever to be caught, and it turned out, fortunately, he wasn't. 
Dr. Cream thrived in the Victorian era. People couldn't fathom the idea of a serial killer, let alone a killer that was supposed to be a doctor. That someone you blindly trust could also be capable of the ultimate betrayal. Although Dr. Cream was eventually convicted, Scotland Yard was heavily criticized by the public for how long it took to finally catch him. From the beginning, how did he get away with so many crimes in so many places when he was often the lead suspect? And ultimately, you know, till before he was finally arrested in uh, uh, London, England. How could Scotland Yard, the premier uh, law enforcement agency of the time, how could even they have struggled to catch this fellow? And part of that is because the serial killer was still a new phenomenon. Uh, I could see that in the, the coverage. One paper even said this is a new kind of monster. He just kills for the sake of killing. You know, it wasn't family, it wasn't provoked, it was just someone who enjoyed murder. And, and, you know, the curse of our times is that's all too common. But in those days, it wasn't well understood. There were other serial killers, but Cream again had the advantage of a society that just was only coming to grips that there could be this kind of a, a cruel killer in their midst. When his past offenses in Ontario and Illinois were publicized, people wondered if the murders in England could have been prevented. It was really instructive to see the just the level of uh, shock, really, that and consternation that uh, that he could get away with so many murders. One of the papers in Illinois even said after he had finally been convicted after he'd been freed by one jury. He'd, he'd stood trial for another murder and been acquitted. And uh, some wringing of hands that if he'd been convicted then or when he was ultimately convicted in Illinois, if he had, if the death penalty had been carried out, because he could have, he could have hanged, you know, some uh, after the fact uh, hand wringing that, well, you know, <laughs> this would have been prevented, lives would have been saved. Less than a month after his conviction, on November 15, 1892, Dr. Thomas Neil Cream was hanged at the Newgate Prison. And somehow, even in death, Cream managed to capture the attention of the public just one more time. I mentioned the parallels to Jack the Ripper. He didn't, to, to uh, any coverage, any accounts of his, of his hanging in 1892 in London. There's no uh, suggestion he made any final words, but about a decade later, a little item appeared when his hangman, a man named Billington, had died, saying that, and it was just a little news brief, one of these filler things you see in a newspaper, saying that he had hanged Cream and possibly hanged Jack the Ripper because Cream's last word in the scaffold was, I am Jack the, and, and then they pulled the trap and it was cut off seemingly mid-confession. Well, now, you would think someone who had thought he'd found Jack the Ripper and perhaps dispatched Jack the Ripper to his to justice would uh, say something. You think anybody else at the scaffold would say something? Nothing was said, and even this story died. But then, about thirty years later, in the 1930s, there was a feature on famous last words on the gallows, and this was found by somebody. And from then on, it became conventional wisdom, and a little mini industry of conspiracy theory developed, determined to prove that Cream was Jack the Ripper. Both killers were fond of sending letters to authority and apparently had similar handwriting. 
But unlike Ripper, Dr. Cream did not stalk his victims and preferred using poison to kill instead of a knife. But because of this one little news story, unattributed and, and really, I mean, we talk about fake news now. There was fake news then. And, um, but it took on a life of its own. And uh, there's no real basis, in fact. You know, the prison records are there, but the efforts to prove that he could have been two places at once have even included suggestions that Cream paid someone to serve his sentence. And that's who walked out of an Illinois prison four years after Jack the Ripper's crimes. Uh, so it doesn't, uh, it doesn't hold up. But as a result of that one little clipping from 1902, until recently, every, almost every list of Jack the Ripper suspects would include Thomas Neal Cream. And when I was doing my research, I took a Jack the Ripper tour, and sure enough, Thomas Neal Cream was brought out as a possible suspect. So uh, it, it's an enduring myth, but it's just that. And even today, almost a century later, Many maintain the belief that Cream's alleged final claim is true. Jack the Ripper or not, Dr. Thomas Neal Cream definitely made a name for himself as the notorious Lambeth prisoner. He murdered as many as 10 people in three countries using his position of power to target vulnerable women. He was the kind of doctor you would only encounter in your worst nightmares. But terrifyingly, he was real. It's an incredible story and uh... Uh, all true, but stranger than fiction at times. But yes, he's just, uh, I mean, he's hes a horrible, cruel character. And the pathology is just chilling. This episode of the 519 Podcast was written and produced by Patrick Magermans and Haley Chang. It was hosted by Haley Chang. 519 Podcast is a presentation of the Blackburn Media Podcast Network.